Hello and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This week we're going to be discussing the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe 2022. I'm Marsh Davis and joining me swooping out of the blue sky wearing two tight spandex, very revealing, is Chris Thurston. Hi, 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 hi. I like that you've, you've appended a date to this, 2022. Grounding us in the present moment in a way that suggests we might ever do this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's possible. Like, I actually considered doing a state of Marvel in previous years as well. Uh, mm. When we didn't have a format specifically for doing such detailed analyses. But um, I suspect the state of Marvel will be something that changes quite dramatically. Mm. I think that's reasonable. Um, I do like the idea of calling it this because you once thought about doing something that we didn't do. <laughs> and I, I feel like I feel like we can get into this right away because this choice that you've made in entitling it such is an active kind of, I think, ambitious franchise management um, <laughs> that's very pertinent to the subject at hand as we expand the uh, the. <laughs> Creighton Crowbar side project universe, a place where nothing has ever gone wrong <laughs> <laughs> or petered out, crucially. Indeed. Were you a comics fan growing up? Did you watch uh, any of the cartoons as a kid? You into the comics? Yes, yes. Yes and yes. I don't know if there were four questions, but you get four yeah. yeses. Why not? Um, yeah, I was very much, um, I sort of, I guess I did grow up reading comics. Um, but in in the incredibly sporadic way um, that was what that was like in the '90s, where you would get sort of odd trade, you know, as an odd trade paperbacks. Not just that they were strange, although they often were, because it was the '90s. But you'd get them out of order or get stories out of sequence. So I think my kind of introduction to Marvel specifically, because like I was initially a kind of a Batman child, and then mm -hmm. I became a Spider Man boy, and that's <laughs> that's the. Um, <laughs> That was my my progress. But like my, my introduction to Marvel Comics was like some combination of like joining absolutely impenetrable X-Men arcs mid-run and things like the Spider-Man clone saga, where there's like a lot of different Spider-Men and a lot oh, of wow. them are wearing like denim jorts and kicking <laughs> the shit out of each other. And so like really that was my my first exposure to to Marvel was was that. And um uh, loving it very much and, and obviously kind of um, consuming as much as I possibly could, but definitely associating it very strongly with a sense of like, um, uh, the, on the negative side, bewilderment, bewilderment. on the positive side, um, a sense that it was, it was unfathomably large and absolutely um, too much for any one person to become um, fully versant in. I hadn't really been exposed to like communities of people who did exactly that at that time. Hmm. Um, and then, um, I, I didn't start buying comics regularly or getting subscriptions to things until about 2003. And then probably did buy comics every month. Pretty much. It was my main hobby, my main use of my disposable income all the way through after uni. So, um, beyond games and things like that. So I have, um, in a storage unit, long boxes full of deeply mediocre runs on Thor and Hercules <laughs> and you know a lot of fairly deep cut Marvel stuff and some good stuff and DC stuff as well and you know the rest of it and, and independent stuff and lots of comics basically uh in in boxes in a storage unit um, do you think that kind yeah. of that kind of early introduction of this stuff has changed your level of investment in 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe as being, you know, a separate entertainment project from the comics? Do you think you bring over some of that kind of love from the comics to it? Or do you just, do you feel that there are different entities which you can treat I think and judge separately? I find that until, and I don't want to skip ahead because I know that we want to kind of ground ourselves in, in kind of like where we're approaching this from. And obviously I kind of want to hear the same answers from your point of view. I feel like my, it was my one-time immersion in Marvel specifically is now not paying dividends, but it's become relevant in phase four and wasn't very relevant before. Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, and the reason it's becoming relevant is because the, they are, the deeper cuts are coming, right? And so there are things where it's like, oh, I, I, you know, like I haven't thought the name Elsa Bloodstone in like <laughs> 15 years and okay, I guess, you know, here we go. Like, you know, but I do remember, you know, where that's going or I can kind of see where things are kind of being plugged in from. I actually, cause I, I think I did, um, there was definitely some overlap between my comic buying former self and the beginnings of the MCU. And it was very exciting to see it start, but then it was very much a case of sitting back and watching it become its own thing and actually really wanting it to be its own thing. And that's something I'll return to, I think, as a kind Interesting. of something to bring to this. Because, um, because yeah, maybe that's a point to return to. Like, I actually quite liked, one thing I would compare it to is the comics of, you know, the comics of, the, the, the universe of the comics is so sort of vast and burdensome that there was this habit for quite a long time. It goes back decades. But I think there was like, I'm remembering a concentration of this in the noughties. Uh, maybe I'm wrong and someone will obviously correct me if I am, but a sense of every possible way you could possibly reboot it to make it sensible or work or work as a story was tried from mm -hmm. both like the kinds of reconstructions or the kind of the post watchmen um, deconstructions of comics, which were a lot of them were really just ways of reconstructing comics with fewer things in them. So I would call out things like the, the boys, the comic book, the boys as that yeah. and a lot of different, there's a, a universe of that stuff alone but also things like the marvel ultimates universe which was like an extremely noughties reboot of late 90s noughties reboot of the universe to be like well we're going to make all these characters tonally aligned with one another and make them fit in one play box basically one one kind of one mm. toy box of stuff and um i think I'm not especially attached to any of those and they all eventually melt and sort of rejoin the mother universe, <laughs> um, literally or otherwise and lose their distinctiveness. And so for me, as the MCU gained steam, the biggest, um, what I wanted for it the most was be like stable in that regard, right. To continue to be its own thing. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily, I know that there is not only like a lot of people who clamor for deeper and deeper cuts and more and more characters to be brought in, but also, um, you know, the, 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 we can talk about the MCU as a content ecosystem in its own right, but it also supports one. It is the, the big kind of, you know, whale covered in YouTuber barnacles. I, this is not a good analogy, but it, it supports <laughs> an ecosystem of content that kind of requires it to keep bringing stuff into itself. Um, and I think all of that stuff is sort of transforming into something else mm. in the space, but I don't want to skip ahead too much, but that's, I kind of, but also I think it's fair to say that like, I am not like, it was interesting actually looking down the big list of every Marvel thing, just to kind of make sure that we had a sense of what it all is and realizing I have seen all of this with the exception of like one thing. 
yeah, not considering myself like a fan. Yeah. Which is kind yeah. of interesting <laughs> for something to be like enormously ubiquitous to have consumed all of it and to be like, yeah. <laughs> uh how about you were you a comics fan much yeah not so much that i picked up individual issues of of any kind of given run um i watched quite a lot of the cartoons on television i watched that i was quite into the x-men cartoon mm-hmm. and the spider-man cartoon um but in terms of paper i was mostly into judge dread in 2000 ad rather than marvel and then mm. sort of moved via like uh, Batman graphic novels into manga. And uh, you know, I had an edgy teenage period where I was reading manga. Um, and then I sort of mostly dropped off with the exception of like sort of kind of more chin strokingy uh, graphic novel endeavors, such as, in fact, Sandman um, mm-hmm. and uh, Watchmen and other things of that kind. But I was never really invested in the Marvel universe as it spread out into its multitudes. So it was quite like you, though. Nonetheless, I, I shared the same desire for the MCU, which was that it remained like a cogent whole, <laughs> in it, something in and of itself, which didn't necessarily pull in or f- feel indebted to the diversions that the uh, the marvel comics must you know contain since they've been going and rebooting themselves since world war ii (laughs) Mm um what do you think of um so martin scorsese came out a while ago uh to sort of why you know as widely reported as him lambasting uh the sort of superhero films that are coming out but i think he made a reasonable point uh in saying that the like the construction, the kind of production methods and the ambition of something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is more like the construction of a theme park um, than how uh, movie making, you know, certainly in uh, his heyday was uh, was considered. Do you think that's fair? Do you think there are sort of like differences between those cinematic endeavors? Does it have like completely different standards and expectations and restrictions to the way that movies are made? I think I have, a, I have a bit of a problem with not only the statement, but probably the entire kind of like universe of meaning around the statement. And the whole territory <laughs> feels like an imploding kind of disaster to me, because I think for one thing, I think one of the reasons this was like catnip to a certain sort of, you know, or certainly catalyzed a certain discourse is because you almost choose for yourself where to draw the line of snobbery in something like this. <laughs> is it, do we hate theme parks now? Is what we're saying, fuck theme park management and theme park designers, I guess? Like that's, you know. Exactly. This, it, it, I'm not yeah. sure that's what, what Scorsese was saying. No, fair. I'm not sure it was, but I feel like the the phrase, it's like the, 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 um, there's what I'm saying really to be less pat about it is like, there's a whole swathe of this, which is effectively what is or isn't movie making or what is or isn't cinema, which is, um, I don't think helpfully approached through this lens, um, you know, and, and everyone who seems to witness this statement kind of seems to bring their own baggage to it. You know, um, if it's, if you're kind of blaming Marvel or this kind of era in blockbuster cinema for the collapse of like medium budget films, um, that is a take. Another take would be to blame streaming, for example, right? There's there's so sure. many, you know, there's so many different ways you can take this. I think um, I think it's 
and I, you know, I don't want to speak to, you know, what the intent is necessarily, what Scorsese's intent is necessarily. Um, there is a marked difference, clearly, in, in which the, the way these movies go about being made to Scorsese's heyday, certainly. But the, there's also echoes for me of much earlier periods in popular cinema, like the studio system, for example. I mean, we call it Marvel mm-hmm. Studios, but like, um, you know, uh, a time where studios were dominant and the power of individual directors and actors uh, was less. Uh, it's it's far closer to that. And similarly, a lot of those studios were churning out things like musicals and westerns, which are also heavily uh, stylized, heavily determined by genre, often um, heavily aimed at a particular audience that were expecting a particular thing from them. Um, I think musicals, like the, the heyday of the Hollywood musical, is basically the best analogy for superhero films in some ways. It's just, I don't think even this height the musical got to a point of ubiquity that it is now. Um, but I think it's a better analogy than most, and mm. and because because of the, the the because of the kind of the rigid genre expectations that the musical imposes, right? Someone's gonna fucking do a song and dance in this, or we're leaving. Is the sort of <laughs> is is the closest I can come to being like of the sort of inevitable inevitable feelings that superhero movies bring, you know, or, or imply like the inevitable set pieces, the inevitable costumes and things like all of that stuff for me has a big. You know, it's not it's not very original to call it operatic, but I think specifically like the way the trappings of genre married to audience expectation are almost immovable, even to people trying to be creative with them. Uh, it's quite similar uh, in some ways to those kind of like bright, brassy era of everyone going to see the new musical mm. instead. See, I, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily. I, I didn't really uh, think about uh, what Scorsese was saying in terms of whether Marvel movies are low or high art, which is obviously how a lot of people have taken his statement to be. But rather, I was thinking about it, and less, less even in terms of like the the content of an individual film, but much more so in terms of the relationship of those films in creating a larger fiction which exists outside of those films in the same way that like uh, you know the theming of a theme park exists outside of the individual rides um and that that's what i what i thought was what he was getting at <laughs> maybe mm. that's a misreading <laughs> I, I think um, but, but if... I, I do think that means it does have different standards and expectations and and restrictions from other films i mean sure you could say that large long-running franchises have similar considerations but there are no long-running franchises as complicated or as interrelated or as different from each other i would say as all of the films that exist within the marvel cinematic universe and so kind of chaperoning that project is is much more like uh you know architecture in a way uh it's more like building uh, like a at a a hotel or a plaza or something than it is, uh, you know, just uh, putting together a single building. I think, I, I think that's, I think there is actually, the, the theme park analogy has some mileage there, sort of, but I think it's about incentivization. And what I would argue is that like the first three phases of Marvel gave them the opportunity to make the theme park and the theme park is Disney Plus. Mm, yeah. That's, that, that would be my contention because I think, the you know uh, i think a lot about theme park design and i think the one way to sort of think about theme park design is everything about a theme park in many ways is intended to funnel you ultimately back to the theme park but also crucially back to the retail areas back to the restaurants back to the main street right talk mm. about like disney's kind of you know thoroughfare back to the neutral areas where you decide what kind of you know uh, experience you'll have next 
the purpose of a theme park is not to sell you tickets for a roller coaster. The purpose of a theme park is to sell you like a chicken sandwich in a hat. And that's the, you know, the artistry in their design is that funneling between highly themed experiences back to neutral and so on. And, and the ownership of every element of that process, this is what they have in common with like Vegas casinos. And, you know, the, um, uh, but in order to get there, you need people to give a shit about the, the, the thing, the experiences themselves as heavily themed experiences. Disney's yeah. been really good at this for a really long time. They've made some theme parks before, but crucially, <laughs> yeah. those theme parks were films first, and they were stories first, and they were they were you know um, works of you know creativity or art that people invested in. And I think I suspect that as the MCU became the force dominant force that it is, like you get into like phase two, phase three, as sort of end game approaches. They knew where it would go next in that regard. They knew what they had built in terms of building investment that allowed them to create basically like a digital theme park to, f to filter back into. But even though obviously they were obviously selling tons of merch and things, I'm not really fully convinced that the main street really existed um, in, a, in a tangible way or the closed ecosystem really existed until the most recent phase. And I would point to that as one of the reasons that it feels different now. Um, it feels less like we're following a linear path to an ending and more like we're kind of stood in the middle of a actually only half branded plaza, you know, sniffing fried chicken on the air and kind of just trying to pick one of several different paths to go down, all of which feel equally anodyne. <laughs> hmm. Not to not to not to skip ahead to my feelings on the current state of Marvel of this podcast, twenty twenty two. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the architectural analogy would be for me. It's, it feels like they built, uh, you know, a, a place I quite liked, and uh, now I've, I've sort of walked down the pier, and there's just a, a sea of like gibbering eels in front of me, and the skies turn purple. <laughs> I don't know what to make of what they're building next. Yeah, but um, yeah, so you are at Disneyland, but whatever substance you've ingested is you're on your like you're on your own. Should we talk a bit about how the 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 project up until phase four went for uh, yeah. Marvel. So phase one, which is uh, the films including Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, and then the Avengers, otherwise known as Avengers Assemble, I think. Um, that in was the, the entirety of phase one. Yeah, I think that's in uh, release order rather than mm. in timeline order, which I had on another document, which I can't find now. <laughs> Is missing the Edward Norton Hulk. I thought it was one of the ones that was made by Sony or something. It was awkwardly sort of like half and half because of the recasting of Bruce Banner. But yeah, the post credits for Hulk has Tony Stark show up. So oh, okay, I'm totally wrong. Sorry, that's okay. I mean, I, I, will he forgive you? Will Ed not forgive you for leaving him out? Oh, well, I wouldn't want to make him angry, would I? Uh. <laughs> oh. I mean, this was the, the the Marvel finding its its feet, right? It wasn't even clear at this point that it was going to be successful in tying these sorts of films together into a coherent whole. Other than, I mean, obviously Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2 were very successful films in their own right. But um, I don't think by the time that uh, like Captain America turned up, the audiences were necessarily convinced at that stage that this was going to be chaperoned into a more coherent multi-hero project 
Do you think that's the case? Yeah, because I'm trying to put myself back in that mindset. And I think the, very quickly, the arc for me was going to see Iron Man 1 in the cinema with a friend. Um, I was at uni when it came out. And being like both kind of like very entertained by the film. Like, I think it's a good film. It's entertaining kind of throwback 80s action movie in a lot of ways. And then the post credit sting, uh, which we had been kind of tipped off to stay because, you know, it's funny to think back to a time where this wasn't just normal, you know, <laughs> and the kind of novelty of it and the mention of the word Avengers and things like that was very exciting. And it's like, but I remember the feeling being very much like they're never actually going to do that, are they? Like, um, because, I mean, it's also worth remembering that at that time, Iron Man was very much like a generously B-tier pop culture object, mm. almost certainly C or D, really. Um, you know, if you if you liked Marvel, you cared about Iron Man, but no one gave a shit, basically. Otherwise. Well, who were the big uh, Marvel heroes at that time? Like Spider-Man, I guess. Spider-Man and the X-Men. Think and about what had been in cinema, mm. right? Like, we, mm. you know, you just kind of come through... Um, the Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, the uh, Brian Singer X-Men movies, you know, obviously the very rough endings and probably arguable in both cases. Um, but, and when, this was before X-Men First Class, wasn't it? So that reboot. But yeah, like Marvel was Spider-Man and the X-Men, really, as far as anyone can, was concerned. And ironically, those are the characters that, and obviously like a bunch of bad Fantastic Four films. That was, you mm. know, like where this was at for them. And then... Um, but it felt very unlikely. And then um, what's interesting, and this will be interesting if we try and make the comparison to other attempts to repeat this, is it's not like an amazing start because you have Iron Man 1 and then the Hulk movie, which is only okay, really. It, you know, like I think it's, I think it gets a kicking that it probably doesn't fully deserve, but it's not a great film. Then Iron Man 2, which is also not a great film. Um, and then, so at this point, like it's bumbling along, but it feels quite uncertain, at least to me. Thor was actually one of the Thor was like an early kind of uh, favorite of mine, even though I think it's all over the place as a movie again, um, because I think I remember I was absolutely expecting them to do ultimate Thor, which is the edgy version of Thor where he's like a grumbly grizzly man who lives in new york and is convinced that he's thor but he's actually just a grizzly man with lightning powers basically oh because i was i was convinced that there would be no way they would do like day glow uh walt simonson sort Mm. of like camp 70s kirby sci-fi colorful thor and let alone like let Kenneth Branagh do that (laughs) um and so when they did i was fucking delighted i saw that in in the in imax with my mum and she loved it. And I was like, this was, I can't believe they've done this. Cause it was a real tonal departure from, that was the first real big tonal, like left turn, I think. Yeah, for um, sure. It was them trying to establish that they could do some of the more kind of outre space magic shit that uh, has since completely dominated. Yeah. <laughs> right. But at the time, the kind of the, the, the presence of the comics was like, um, very, very tangible in a way that's very novel. Mm. And also, but also they dropped in Hawkeye in that movie and that kind of thing. So it's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. There's this shit in this for big nerds. And then I don't think it was until um, the first Captain America film that it started to really click for me that it was actually coming together. And at that point, obviously, they knew they were making, you know, we, everyone knew they were making Avengers. But like, as inevitable as the rest of it feels now, I do feel like it was only right at the end of that phase that it was actually actually like, oh shit, they're actually doing this. 
this is actually yeah. kind of coming together. Yeah, that tonal whiplash between like Iron Man one, which is which is so desperate to ground itself. Because mm-hmm. it, I mean, it uses like uh, you know the uh, sepia-toned Call of Duty style depictions <laughs> of the Middle East, uh, um, which feel pretty. Um, I mean, pretty racist, I guess. <laughs> if uh-huh. you watch the film again today, um, but I mean, I guess at the time it kind try, try, was trying to lend it some more of that kind of grounded uh, gunmetal patter to what was otherwise going to be a superhero film. And then suddenly you get Thor, which is, you know, space magic and uh, giant silver warriors with um, beams for faces. Oh, my God, those fucking sidekicks. What are they called? The Warriors 3? Oh, the Warriors 3, just, yeah. Oh, just the worst sidekicks in the Marvel <laughs> pantheon. Uh, I'm so glad they get killed. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a real mess, that film, but like the, the, the comedy, uh, I think, is the thing, is the through line, actually. It's the thing that mm-hmm. made, that carried people from, in fact, it's the thing that made Iron Man 1 work was really uh, Robert, Robert Downey Jr.'s kind of his easy, overlapping, quippy passer um, with Gwyneth Paltrow, etc. And I don't think yeah. the, the cinematic universe would exist without Jon Favreau, probably. Mm. I think they would have carried on trying to make films, but... I, it was it was John Favreau's ability to uh, to put a script together like Iron Man had, and then f- get the performances out of those characters um, that made it saleable. I think. Um, yeah, I think you're right to draw attention to humor as well. I just just to sort of think about it separate, a different way. I think um, I, I think none of it would have worked without humor um, at all, because I feel like you can kind of trace this tonal arc from like. In, even in that first phase from like this is sort of grounded but it's also kind of leading with comedy which will put you at ease makes it okay to invest in the universe it's a bit like getting people into a new D campaign you kind of mm. you lead with fun and then kind of you can take things more seriously and then sort of captain america which is also you know a light movie but is also the moment where it comes a bit more sincere because that character is kind of all heart and then it kind of you know is then you're into the the weed and patter zone um oh god yeah um for the avengers but i was just thinking about this in the light of what came before it where you have um you know what superhero movies had been where if you look at like the raimi spider-man movies have a kind of like obviously a charming element to them and a humor to them but they're also like and i think this is appropriate for spider-man like they are all heart they're very schmaltzy like they are you know they're very sort of um you know, densely tragic and, you know, um, and I think that's, you know, a strength in, in some ways a weakness. You also got the X-Men movies, which are high melodrama, basically 100% of the time. It, they're kind of like histrionic films about kind of like superpowered people um, getting extremely upset all the time. And the other thing that obviously was absolutely monolithic before coming into this, um, although again, I believe there's some overlap, is the Nolan Batman trilogy, which was the, like, most important superhero entity on cinema prior to the MCU, um, you know, and looms over it. And like, and I think what's interesting and, and those, you know, and those are films that are utterly without humor in so many mm. ways. And, um, but the, 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 um, the authenticity or the, the kind of credibility they bought for themselves were often by being tributes to 
cinema that Martin Scorsese would acknowledge as such. Let's put it that way, right? Like I'm going to make Heat, but Batman's in it, right? Yeah. Or something like that. And also, crucially, like talking about the, you're right to call out the sepia filter thing because also this was the era of like um, exclusively sort of, um, you know, cold filter Batman must rescue all the cops from the big hole they fell in <laughs> so he can form the cop army. And <laughs> like, I, I, this is, I do not want to spin off on this. This is a different podcast. But holy <laughs> shit. Dark Knight Rises has aged incredibly badly in my eyes. Like, mm. I think it's really, of all the mo- like movies from that era to go back to, it's one of the funniest in some ways because it <laughs> it really misjudges how people are going to feel about certain certain lives. And, you know, uh, going into the, the subsequent 15, 20 years of, of you know, our cultural history. Um, anyhow, but yeah, like almost like Iron Man kind of cl- literally in that movie climbs out of the sort of like gritty realism hole and goes off on a rocket adventure, which it turned out was what, everyone wanted to do well i think it's because up it was such a sort of sense of relief because up until that point you had i mean from the perspective of the comics uh desperate to be taken seriously by wider society you have you know the frank miller runs and all these kind of grim dark Mm -hmm. stuff and it's like no comics are for adults too you know and then of course you have like the incredibly uh earnest but at times quite emo um spider-man films and then iron man just has a sense of charisma and uh, chillness to him, <laughs> which which kind of re- relieves the tension on having mm. to buy into this character. Um, and then Thor does it again because at the same time you have him being this, you know, he is a, a space god. But actually, the the whole thing is acknowledging how uh, absurd that is by placing him in this fish out of water story where you know he will smash a coffee cup and shout another. And and again, that's like an invitation to the audience just to kind of roll with it and, and find the pleasure in that idea without having to kind of onboard them through a whole bunch of mythology. And then mm. I think Captain America, again, similarly made a smart choice by kind of rooting the aesthetic in it in like this, the this is it the silver or golden age of comics? You know, it had that kind of aesthetic. Gold, of a, really? Like, golden. Yeah, it's closer to like uh, silver age gets real weird. I think I think you'd be fair to say gold. Yeah. And I, th- I think all of those choices allowed people to enjoy those films about silly superheroes, which they might not have done otherwise. And then Avengers comes along and it sort of like seals the deal, basically. Mm. Um, I don't particularly love Avengers, having gone back to it, Avengers Assemble rather than the Avengers mm-hmm. Project in general. Um, it's a hell of a Whedon, <laughs> is what I would say. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. it's... It's, what you know what's weird about it is that you know for a long time Whedon was kind of uh, vaunted for his his dialogue um and I think I kind of bought into that idea as well and that but going back to it more recently that's the one thing that really uh really doesn't work I mean the whole film is is, is straining at the seams you know because it has so much to do and it needs to give all these different characters time and space and stuff but like I understand why that would be a very difficult thing for the film to pull off and the fact that it succeeds even partially is, is quite surprising but it's just the the small stuff like the dialogue and the just just i don't know like like when when um tony stark and and uh uh pepper Potts rib each other in iron man like every line seems to have a purpose like an actual purpose like their positions are true to their characters and the larger narrative and they're just ex- in they're just expressing themselves in a witty way but where but Whedon just feels like, oh, it's it's time for a quip now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you just, it feels like, it did, you know, they don't have any, they don't express any greater purpose or value. They just quip at each other because it's a quipping scene. And which doesn't mean that the quips are always bad. It's just that they don't seem anchored to anything. Um, uh, I found that very vexing. Um, yeah. Well, but... It's like every character <laughs> takes it in turns to momentarily be Xander from Buffy and then hands the, the conch to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I remember that it felt very kind of exciting and impressive, I think, at the time. And I, I also don't think it hugely holds up the first Avengers movie. Like, so much so that I think when it's... Because it's constantly been called back to in subsequent material. And actually, in a, in a very nostalgic way. And that is almost where it seems to be best. Like, it, it belongs in the past in some strange way. Like, it is a sort of nostalgic object rather than, I think, something that hugely holds up compared to what comes next in some ways. Um but I do remember really vividly the experience of seeing it in the cinema. And that time I'd moved to Bath and was a PC gamer at the time. We had like an office trip to see it. And it was a real buzz to kind of see this sort of very ambitious cinematic thing come together. And yeah, maybe you're watching the first the first building go up in the theme park to come. But it was sort of, it did feel like, um, you know, a unique moment, I think. You know, for, for like in terms of having not, experienced that in the cinema before and then i don't know how uh if you if you know the top of your head how long it was between that and iron man 3 i feel like there was a big gulf of time between avengers Mm. and and the the beginning of phase two formally which began with iron man 3 but um that may be an illusion but it feels like so phase two includes uh iron man 3 uh thor the dark world captain america the winter soldier the first guardians of the galaxy movie avengers age of ultron and ant-man um it feels like it wasn't going in a, in a particular direction at that stage but it was still it was still kind of establishing itself it was re-establishing for having gone from the kind of like the the um invitation to frivolity of phase one phase two is all about kind of establishing the gravitas of those characters perhaps without with the exception of guardians of the galaxy um yeah i think there's two sides to it i think one is one side of it is um like as you say starting to take things slightly more seriously starting to dig into some you know darker themes you know successfully or not ham-fistedly or not um and then the with the exception of age of ultron which i think you possibly breeze past i think the other thing that's really and maybe dark world as well actually one thing that's notable is like this is them beginning to experiment with directors. Mm. Um, they bring in Shane Black for Iron Man 3 and he makes a Shane Black movie. And like, it's not, I don't think it's awful, Iron Man 3. Like, I think it's, it's not, you know, but I think the yeah. thing that is notable about it is it's an it's a Shane Black movie. So it's an action film set at Christmas, which is basically what that means. Um, <laughs> they, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, God is a Galaxy, um, same deal, right? They bring in James Gunn. Um, Ant-Man was originally going to be an Edgar Wright movie. Oh, yeah. Was, which was also a big experiment. And uh, I guess the Winter Soldier was like their big gamble on the Russos, which paid off hugely, right? It's the best oh, film yeah. in that set. It's also, it's the one where it's like, if you imagine phase two, is like a whole bunch of directors enter an arena and one of them's getting given the keys to mm. the kingdom after that, you know, that's that's that was the outcome, right? And then they obviously picked right because it's certainly, it's one of the best Marvel films and it's the, certainly the best film in that set. Yeah. Um, but what I find kind of interesting about this, and this is a brief aside, uh, something we may well lock in on in a different way, but um, I think the the big difference um, 
one of the big ways to, to think about the difference between the management of Marvel and, and you're seeing franchise management at this point and the management of Star Wars over the years is Star Wars has been managed much more in a kind of like give it to a director and see what they do with it way. And that's been the source of a lot of its problems. And it's it's it's, it's now increasingly rare successes. Um, Marvel has traditionally been centrally managed with quite cautious freedom granted to direct other directors to do things with it. And this this seems like the the initial kind of foray into like, what would someone else do with it? Um, and I think that's kind of interesting that, <clears throat> that you know, I think from, from this point onwards, you see those kinds of experiments sort of varyingly indulged um, through to the end of Endgame. Because the other thing that emerges from this phase is a fairly strong sense of direction as well. Like at this point, the, the movies start to pull together around the, you know, coming kind of infinity well it's really going end of this phase into the next one is as the kind of like Thanos stuff starts to really kick in yeah yeah the larger arc stuff begins to take hold um it is interesting how they've 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 struggled with the idea of having particularly distinct directions because I think well maybe we'll talk about this more in in when we get to phase four but um I think at a certain point within the project that individual direction was seen as a hazard. Um, mm. Whereas I now think what they're doing is that they are, they feel that they have bought themselves the, uh, the license to use that more in, in the later phase, but certainly in, in, in phase two, they, they, um, they get their fingers burnt, I think by uh, a lot of directors going off piste from their kind of, their attempts to focus the aesthetic of these uh, different characters um yeah, yeah i also like iron man 3 more than generally other people <laughs> seem to it's got there's a kind of a pretty interesting and violent thriller in there mm. even aside from and the, the fact that tony stark doesn't really have any powers throughout it is, is quite an interesting twist it does however center on the idea that disabled people are dangerous and that <laughs> if you attempt to help them in any way you inevitably become a terrorist that's that's just how science funding works, I'm afraid. But um, yeah, also I all think, of these, yeah. all the Iron Man films end with big robots punching each other, and that fucking sucks. But it's it's topless people with CGI fire on them in Iron Man three, really. Oh yeah, well no, there is there is a horde of robots as well. Oh, that is true. You are right. <laughs> um, I think this is the thing. Like actually, Iron Man three is probably the most like a lot of the com- Iron Man comics I was reading in the noughties. and. Um, a lot of its sort of worst habits are kind of inherited from from that era. Although it is also kind of, yeah, it, it sort of, it borrows a lot of the aesthetic from like things like Warren Ellis's run on Iron Man, but without borrowing the sort of slightly more off-kilter futurism of some of that. Um, and so, yeah, but I, as you say, I, I, I don't dislike it. Um, I think that's like, it's interesting, like that being the phase that like, I think there's a lot of things that people will call out as sort of like big moments in there. I think I think the Winter Soldier is the moment Marvel figured out how to do a darker story and actually sell it um, mm. without it just sort of, I mean, literally the film that doesn't have to tell you that it's dark in the title, just to let you know. Um, <laughs> and then Guardians of the Galaxy was like the big space nonsense departure that set the tone for so much that would come after it. And actually one of the criticisms you could probably level up a subsequent Marvel is that like, Guardians of the Galaxy basically set the tone for a lot of things that would follow. 
Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, and I, I quite like Guardians of the Galaxy when I first saw it, but I've actually grown to pretty find that I think both the Guardians of the Galaxy films are way low in my rankings for all of the Marvel films now. I think for me, Guardians, like, I think it was very, very refreshing at the time. I think there's many things that hold up about it. I think, um, and obviously, you know, James Gunn recently instantiated is like in charge of the DC cinematic universe mm. now. I think it is refreshing and it's funnier than the Avengers. And I think maybe it's just sort of its shtick has worn thin mm. and therefore it's less fun to go back to. Like retro and incongruous retro soundtrack while the space thing happens is in all of these films now. Yeah. And yeah. And the, I mean, like the production design is great. And there's a, like, I, I, I think when I first saw it, it was the sort of unabashed flamboyance of it, which mm. is sort of uh, disarming and, and wowing. But now that's the, like the baseline tone for all of the larger Marvel space magic stuff that no longer kind of is, is a thing to impress. Um, and the, the, then relies on the, the script and the, the charisma of the, the, the cast, which I don't, I don't totally yeah totally buy anymore it's the most in danger of becoming cringe which is something we <laughs> could all fear well i think it's interesting we'll come back to uh how dc stacks up alongside this stuff but i think uh, you, you what you're saying about james gunn going on to kind of um chaperone dc is interesting because there are comparisons you can make between guardians of the galaxy's sort of frivolity and tone and what he then did with the suicide squad and peacemaker mm. um but whether that is a trajectory which has uh uh much longevity in it is, a, is another thing to discuss but we'll get back to that should we just briefly move on have an overview of phase three and then uh yeah well i mean so i don't know if this is controversial but i think like phase three is like the strongest by miles obviously it's also the biggest by miles yeah but like um you know i i don't think there's like a true misfire in there at all i think the probably the most forgettable film is ant-man and the wasp i would also put um obviously it's a sony movie but spider-man homecoming in this list um mm. to be clear so we initially list the films so captain america civil war doctor strange guardians of the galaxy volume 2 thor ragnarok Black Panther, uh, Avengers Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame. Um, that's a pretty good run, in my opinion. I think I think a lot of the best films that they've made are in there. Um, and I think I can and I can just remember this being a consistently pretty exciting time to be into these sorts of things. I didn't see all of them in the cinema, but you know, I did make sure to have seen all of them by the time Endgame rolled around and you know, to me, this is the achievement that they are currently tasked with recreating this phase mm. and how it came together. I don't know if you Because it's this phase which really ties all of those films into an ongoing uh, continuity, which then climaxes in Endgame, right? Mm. Um, and, there's, and as you watch them, there was a real sense of that escalating threat in the background and the, the kind of everything driving towards this single narrative point. Uh, whilst also having the time to kind of set up all these other characters and stuff. And that was, uh, it, this is the point of the MCU, which um, regardless of what, uh, you know, I might think about it in terms of it being high or low art, I don't really have an opinion on that, but like I admire it as a, as a project uh, because it, it just, just having this sequence of films which are able to establish their own identity whilst also driving towards um 
a major kind of narrative climax is very impressive to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of really distinct films in there that actually succeed as distinct films and then play into a greater, or, or crucially, weave something into the whole, which I think is the most healthy way to see this, right? Like, I yeah. think, you know, um, that run from um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which I actually think is a decent film, personally. it's I prefer it to the first Guardians. Um, uh, through Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther into Infinity War, each of those three films are pretty different to each other. Oh, yeah. And they are all sort of equally pertinent to Infinity War tonally, which is interesting, I think. Um, uh, in fact, the, all the first five in general um, seem to kind of all kind of hand something up to the film that they're building towards. And I think there's a, a very strong sense of the, the benefit of that centralized kind of management. I wouldn't call it control necessarily because like um, Thor Ragnarok is probably in some ways the biggest stylist, uh, stylistic departure of the set. And um, on the other, in terms of being an outright comedy and then Black Panther is probably the most sort of um, thematically rich movie they had made to that point. And those two were adjacent to each other and yet they were both equally relevant to the Avengers movies that followed. Like that to me mm. is the success of that phase. And it's the, um, it's the best argument for the sort of universe building effort is to sort of weave all these different elements together and encourage this kind of movement back and forth between them. Um, yeah, like I, I'm not saying it's perfect. Like I'm not saying that the sort of various elements can't be balanced better. And I think, you know, both Ant-Man and the Wasp and Dr. Strange and Captain Marvel are all like, okay. Um, but I don't think it's been better than this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and genuinely like, um, seeing both Infinity War and Endgame in the cinema for the first time were genuine experiences watching those things come together, particularly watching Endgame, mm. um, which, you know, was such a, you know, again, don't want to break into a completely separate rant here, but like, I was so impressed that they landed it with Endgame. You know, it's a, obviously it's a huge overloaded, like, does it still, you know, if you want to get into your, does it still count as cinema argument? Go for it. But it's such a kind of, it's such a, a overloaded thing. And yet as a kind of, you know, Herculean, act of just bringing this thing down and landing everything important to land and giving the kind of cathartic payoff for so much buildup. It's lovely to see that actually happen and to see it resonate with people and to see it kind of people walk out of it buzzing because holy shit, they actually did it. Um, it's funny because that was what early summer 2019. And I came, one of my big thoughts into the second half of that year was being like, holy shit, they can actually do it. They can actually build these, big spectacular endings you know endings are hard and they can actually end one so there's absolutely no way they fuck up uh the end of the star wars trilogy um (laughs) 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 indeed um and so you know i think in in hindsight then you look back on it and be like look you're thinking about all of the things that were ending that year it was a big year for endings um in terms of start the star wars trilogy game of thrones also ended that year um I think it stands up as like the only one that went well, basically. <laughs> yeah, I really. I mean, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive to me also that uh, Infinity Wars is, is, is such a bummer. <laughs> mm. Like it was, it was a very bold choice of them to make something so resolutely bleak. And 
yeah, of course you knew that probably ultimately they would prevail in a, in a, in a subsequent film, but it still ends on a real gut punch. And, you know, I, I, the, their choices of how they characterized Thanos uh, as a pers- mm. persisting villain across those two films, absolutely fantastic. You know, he's the, I mean, he is the antithesis of a lot of cackling superhero film villains up until that point. Like, he's, you know, he is incredibly measured. He's calm. He's sorrowful. He's wise, despite being <laughs> quite evil. <laughs> um and then, uh, yeah, it's uh, Avengers Endgame, like you say, it's, it, to, to, to tie off not only the climax of these films, but also as a send-off to a number of those characters was uh, was quite good, I think. Um, not altogether sure that uh, uh, Black Widow deserved to be dispatched in, in uh, nope. that manner, but certainly um, Captain America gets, gets a good retirement. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of film things about those two films which are, I I think are are messy. They couldn't have been otherwise. I think it's just mm-hmm. you know there's there's they have to do a, a lot in a very small amount of time. And uh, the the second film, the way that it undoes some of the things that the first film does in order to allow the characters to get out, it's as as a little glib, um, and it feels it cheapens perhaps some of the tragedy of the first film. But that being said, like um, it's still it's still uh, undeniably a moment of massive jubilation when those kind of massed forces of the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, arrive on the battlefield together. You know, I can't help but feel like my heart yeah. <laughs> sing a little at that moment against you know all, all my better instincts to be a piece of miserable shit all times. <laughs> I think that's the thing. So I'll confess something, which is that like. I think this was this was probably the point for me where I started enjoying Marvel primarily through reaction videos. Um, mm. I've had this for a while. I, I pre- the there's there's a, a state that fiction can get to for me, or like these big franchises can get to, where I pre- pre- primarily just want to watch other people enjoy them, um, which is probably a fetish, really. Um, <laughs> I like to watch, um, but specifically the, the previous thing that's happened to me with was Doctor Who. Where like I just found Doctor Who absolutely impossible to watch myself, even though I kept up with it for years. But I would I would watch people's reactions to the big moments when they happen, like the regenerations and stuff, because I just enjoy what it means to people. And something I really love about this sort of um, pop culture really is is those big kind of like because I've never you know I think for some people or for a lot of people it's kind of like it is as kind of a big and emotional and and high investment as sport is, for example. And obviously these are staged moments and, and so on, but there is this sort of like, it's just nice to watch people be happy and yeah. it's nice to watch people kind of really, you know, and when I say like sport is, I mean, like people have a big investment in what happens to these characters and that, that carries meaning. I, I can never be snobby about that. I think it's, it's, it's still my favorite, my preferred way to, to enjoy these things. And often my enjoyment of something is based on how rich those moments are actually, because they can be achieved quite cheaply, but I think, Endgame really earns it. And I think it's so telling to me. Uh, you know, and, and I'll say this in Endgame's, in Endgame's praise. Um, I think it works as hard as it possibly can to convince you that there isn't going to be a big Avengers Assemble moment. And even though you know there is, because every film has one, right? In every film involves a shot where you, they, they're all standing either in a line or the camera's panning around them. And you're like, yeah, there they are. There they are, the Avengers of the title. They certainly are there. <laughs> um, and 
Um, the film works super hard to set that up. And then when it finally happens, it's really like very cathartic because, you know, like, I mean, it's not subtle. They've, you, you've got like Steve Rogers standing there fucking panting and sweating like he's <laughs> and then and then it just sort of spooges characters you like all over you. And then you're like and, and you're, mm. you're happy and relieved and feel a bit guilty probably. Um, it's all the better for for the fact that they uh, they have their ass handed to them a second time during mm-hmm. that film as well, and then only for the, third, the third time they face off, do they manage to get things right. Yeah, the thing I would again compare it to is like, and then so the, the cynical thing of that is like, oh, all you need to do is just fling characters people know at people's faces, and they'll they'll lap it up. But compare that to the ham-fisted attempt at a similar moment in Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker which just doesn't fucking work at all. And I know it doesn't work because I went looking for reaction videos to see if they could make me feel something. And like, you'll see a man sat like, you know, like in a room full of Star Wars Funko Pops watching, you know, Lando inexplicably arrive with every spaceship in the galaxy. And they'll be like, oh, (laughs) you know, whereas people are like weeping and pulling their hair out and cinema at the the end of Endgame. Um, And so, yeah, I think, um, I genuinely do enjoy that. I mean, to, to the to the extent that not to skip ahead, but like, if I'm going to see a Marvel film in the cinema nowadays, I will almost certainly go on the first night, and I won't really go otherwise. Like, because that for me is like the point of them now is like that high investment, like fans super excited for something, being able to kind of feed off their energy like an energy vampire and therefore feel something momentarily. Like that, that's kind of the point of them, and I think it's. Um, I don't want to skip ahead, but I feel like that energy is leaving the room real fast after a fairly mm. strong start in the new phase. Yeah. Well, but before we get to that new phase, mm-hmm. do you want to do a quick aside about the uh, specifically the Netflix TV series because they mm. don't they don't exactly they don't really weren't incorporated into any of these phases, but they are now being sort of invited back into the MCU. Um, but it's maybe worth just noting that they happened. Um, yeah. Daredevil, uh, Jessica Jones, The Punisher, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist uh, all had uh, their debuts on on Netflix um, in very, very long individual seasons. Just super long. So um, I... The, the only other Marvel character that I really loved as a kid other than Spider-Man is Daredevil. And mm. it's a big, enduring one for me. I fucking love Daredevil. And I really love that show, actually. Um, I uh, I really dug it at the time. Uh, I haven't rewatched it, but I think just fucking great casting generally across the board. Um, uh, maybe I'm too much of a fan of it, but like Vincent D'Onofrio is great. Um, yeah. Um, oh, I've completely blanked on her name. Who plays Electra? I thought she was the best version of the character that they've in an adaptation that I've seen. Mm. Um, um, and Charlie Cox as um, as Matt Murdock is great, and you know a, a real kind of success in that regard. And then um, I think Jessica Jones stands up again. I think Kristen Ritter is really well cast. I think it's a really good version of the character. I think John Bernthal is great as Frank Castle. I think the Punisher stuff, as when it's introduced, is really exciting to watch those things come together. Um, I think the, the first Luke Cage season really good, and then Iron Fist. Oh no! And then the Defenders shits itself, and then I stopped being interested. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty good summation. I think all of all of those um, seasons, even the good ones, are like maybe eight episodes longer than they needed oh, to God, be. Yeah. Uh, there's something about the structure of the way that Netflix chose to make those uh, stories that just included a huge amount of additional padding that was totally, totally and utterly unnecessary. Um, and then, yeah, everything about Iron Fist was just straight up wrong. Um, yeah, they just got it completely wrong. And it's, and I think it's really telling to me like how I don't know how they undo that. Well, I think I think the next phase gives you the clue. They just take all of the things that Iron Fist was ever going to do in the MCU and give it to Shang-Chi, and that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Well, let's talk about phase four. Shall I run down the exhaustive list of uh, yeah. entries? Um, One Division, the television series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, also TV, Loki, TV, Black Widow, a film! What if dot 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 question mark that's a television show shang chi legend of the ten rings film eternals very bad film hawkeye television moon knight television doctor strange in the multiverse of madness film miss marvel television thor love and thunder film i'm groot a series of one shots tv which i haven't watched she hulk attorney at law tv which i have watched Werewolf by Night, a one-shot. I watched it only a couple of days ago, and it was, eh. Yeah. But yes, so, I mean, the big news there is that Film 4 currently incorporates more television than it does films. Mm -hmm. uh, and Would it be reasonable for me to suggest there are two Spider-Man films in this as well? Yes, yes, I think it is, yeah. Because they are full-on Marvel movies at this point, right? Like Nick Fury's in um, Homecoming, and Doctor Strange is a huge part of uh, No Way Home. So... Yeah, very true. Yes. Um, does that change whether there's more films than not? No, I think it's still more television. Yeah, yes, by, it is. By some way. <laughs> do you think, I mean, how's, do you think that changes the nature of the overall Marvel Cinematic Universe mission that uh, the majority of its content is now siloed away on a platform that people cannot just casually go and see at the cinema? Yeah, and I don't remember really sort of picking at this, but this is the moment where it really starts feeling like the comics to me. Like it really starts feeling like the experience of buying comics in, let's say for the sake of argument, 2007. <laughs> and there's so much going on and there's stuff siloed away in its own sort of stylistic cubby holes and narrative cubby holes or crossover moments. But it doesn't feel, it's funny that obviously it feels possible to watch all of the Marvel stuff because we have, with the exception of the group thing, which we haven't. Um, um, but it has that kind of sprawling breadth to it without a sense that you're watching one story evolve over a series of maybe stylistically divergent, but still kind of centrally managed iterations. It feels like a domain to wander around in now rather than a story to receive. Mm. And I think that's yeah. both true of the setting from the perspective of people picking an element of it to flesh out with their stories, but also true of the experience of being a viewer of it is it feels like, well, um, every one of these shows I watch or every one of these films I watch is going to take me on an excursion to part of this setting, but no more than that. I think it's, yes, I think that's true. I think it's also created sort of uh, a neuroses uh, within the whole kind of mission here, which is that obviously they have a financial incentive for one film, for example, to 
try and encourage people to go and uh, see other things within the same cinematic universe. They want it in some way to become necessary for you to watch one thing in order to understand another. But at the same time, they want the exact opposite of that because they need these things to be standalone entertainments. And so what you have is this sort of like fracturing essentially of of and doubling of a lot of strands of narrative um, so that you can still be fed information about the encroaching multiverse from lots and lots and lots of different angles but at the same time none of those things feel consequential anymore because it's quite possible that you could have missed them or seen uh, a different film or different tv series and also it's almost as though the filmmakers themselves <laughs> have not been able to create a singular vision like it, it's almost mm-hmm. as though that they've they've reintroduced the idea of the multiverse a bunch of times now in a bunch of different films and tv series and in each one it seems to work in a slightly different way and it's no clearer about what the uh, where this is ultimately going really so i think they've sort of been hoisted by their own petard there in that they want this thing to be attractive and bring people into Disney Plus but at the same time they can't commit to that because they need these things to be kind of individually coherent and the result of that is that they are neither a kind of uh, compelling ongoing narrative and in some cases not even individually coherent anymore. Yeah it's interesting because I think there's too many different threads, I think would be my argument. And like, I'm not of the belief that the value of a Marvel thing is what it gestures to in the kind of meta story, right? I don't think that's the case. However, if you look at the face before this, the Infinity Saga, whatever they would call it, um, the, the, the meta plot of like, can the big purple man get all the Chaos Emeralds is tangible enough to kind of string together otherwise disparate elements and kind of reassure you that like we'll take a punt on you might be not sure about Thor because you liked Captain America but they're all playing towards the same story I think my one of the things that's sort of a problem for phase four is that they're teeing as far as I can tell looking at the list I think they're teeing up like three or four different big crossovers or events, right? Equivalent to Endgame. Um, and they're doing them very, very, very slowly. So much so that even though it's been, feels like years at this point, you know, and obviously you can blame things like the pandemic and other things getting in the way and messing up production schedules, but it still feels like we're crawling towards, not even the midsection, but like, you remember how it felt when like, I think it was at the end of, was it the end of Age of Ultron where like, Thanos finally grabs the Infinity Gauntlet and he's like, okay, we're going somewhere now. And it's like, it'd been years to get to that point. I feel like we're no closer to that point with any of these plot lines. And just to kind of be clear what I mean, I'm going to kind of think about the list and think about what is teasered with each of them. So, um, and so, I mean, I think we can be fairly free with spoilers, but like the end of Spider-Man Homecoming is the kind of, is basically te- is a multiverse teaser because even though it's not quite this at the time, it brings back um, sort of um, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. It's the revelation of Spider-Man's identity, which will be the big thing into the No Way Home storyline. That's a multiverse story. The end of One Division is actually a scroll teaser, um, which is set up for Secret Invasion. Um, the end of Falcon and the Winter Soldier is similar. It's a it's another kind of heavy hint towards Secret. Uh, invasion uh again something that's barely been trailered 
the end of Loki is setting up Kang the Conqueror, um, which could be a multiverse thing, quite likely to be. Um, so but, quantum mania thing for sure. Yeah, um, it's where Kang fits into that as the other big Marvel villain. Um, you know, Kang should really be Thanos to this phase, but Jonathan Majors hasn't really had a chance to do anything yet. Um, the Black Widow is kind of its own thing. What if is the multiverse show and sets up tons of stuff that's actually not really been called back to at all. Um, the end of Shang-Chi gestures towards a potential like um, merging of like what is kind of evidently like somewhere between a kind of Captain Marvel space magic plotline and maybe the X-Men. Um, it, Eternals, what the fuck? Have, Eternals just like spirals out sideways at the end and is like, I mean, obviously beloved character from the comics, but like here is Harry Styles as Thanos's brother and Patton Oswalt as a gremlin. Um, <laughs> good night, everybody. Uh, we'll never speak of this again. Let's hope. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, Hawkeye is again gesturing towards like the merger of the um, the Netflix shows into the MCU. Um, uh, Moon Knight, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where you go with Moon Knight. Moon Knight, Moon Knight doesn't. Well, yeah, Moon Knight ends up with like I guess there'll be more Moon Knight, which is you know bold of them. Um, Doctor Strange Multiverse Madness also kind of goes nowhere at the end other than, I guess, there's more multiverse. Um, Ms. Marvel goes surprisingly towards X-Men at the end. Um, oh, there's X-Men in uh, Multiverse of Madness as well. True. Actually, yeah, it's almost like uh, Multiverse of Madness almost gets its credit sequence in the middle. I'd forgotten about that. Um, Thor Love and Thunder sets up an ongoing kind of bringing in more of the Olympian characters and bringing in Hercules. Fine. Um, and like... And uh, She-Hulk very much does its own thing. And Werewolf by Night can... Actually, the, actually, to be honest, the real thing Eternals does is Eternals is like the kickoff to Blade, which is not what anyone was expecting it to be. Is it? Really. Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, Maharaja Ali is kind of heard in the post-credits and um, Thingy Kit Harrington's character is going to become Black Knight. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and that overlaps quite closely with the end of what Werewolf by Night is setting up, which is like the Hammer Horror side of the... Powerful universe, mm. and so I mean, I, hopefully, exhaustingly listing them out like that isn't too boring. But the point is, where <laughs> is going on? The, you know, and so and so you start looking at the meta thing of like, what have they got coming? Well, they're definitely doing secret invasion, and they're also doing secret wars, and those are different things. <laughs> it's worth bearing in mind; very different things. Um, but none of it feels very tangible at all as a kind of something to keep you kind of pulled into these things and that's not a problem in and of itself what i think is a problem is that even as they sort of embark in these sort of you know new directions none of it feels substantively explored enough or meaningful enough that i necessarily really care about any of it yet i think maybe i'm getting lost in the point here a little bit but i i'm really surprised to be honest how much and how little they're using the multiverse stuff in that it seemed really abundantly clear at the beginning of this phase like okay we're going in a multiverse direction and it feels like they and i have strong feelings that that's not a good thing but mm. it also feels like they've consistently pulled that punch at every possible opportunity um and there, you can tell that there's some production and discomfort there like um 
Doctor Strange and Spider-Man No Way Home were originally supposed to be the other way around. And you mm. can tell. Yeah, um, that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, and But even then, sort of the, the lack of connective tissue between those films, the, the awkwardness of like, Spider-Man busted open the multiverse by accident, but we fixed it. But oh no, the multiverse, but it's fine, is sort of like mm. very odd to me similarly um the lack of connective tissue between where what if ends up and then the the actual doctor strange multiverse film um the lack of a firm connection to similar themes in loki like it's it's all sort of very loose to me in a way that i'm finding quite unsatisfying well it's not only i mean it is it is definitely loose uh but but also i think there's a just a, a fundamental threat to the whole of the fiction that the the idea mm. of the multiverse um, presents, and it's it's part of just uh, an ongoing escalating difficulty for me to engage with uh, a lot of the new characters. Uh, the kind of the higher the power level of these characters, the further they get away from uh, a reality in which I I am engaged. And mm. uh, um, when you get to sort of like eternals level there's not that kind of many kind of higher levels of god they can escalate to uh and i i mean i don't know if this is this is a you share this this theory but i think superheroes become exponentially less interesting at the point at which they can fly huh. i think that's that maybe is like the, the 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 kind of the first point at which they're kind of the they the the graph begins to plateau <laughs> for my interest in them um because you're just reaching a level of power at that point, which is then no longer connected to the kind of travails of ordinary people to whom one I can, uh, you know, to whom one can identify. Um, and the multiverse is a, has a similar problem of disengaging me from um, any kind of uh, investment in continuity, uh, because it's clear mm-hmm. that characters who are dead can just simply come back. Um, that anything that happens in one universe won't happen in another or happen differently. And it it just means that basically nothing has any meaning anymore. And I think yeah. that's a very bold and perhaps stupid <laughs> uh, direction to take uh, a franchise that you wish people to be invested in over the long time. In in a big way, it's the thing I hoped would never happen. Um, not <laughs> it's the one thing we didn't want to happen because it is the enemy of consequence in the comics it really is you can always mash a universe together my my hope for phase four and um so i mean you know see if you're not aware the theme of secret wars in the comics and they'll probably do this for some way in the show is what if all the universes crashed together um and my hope for this was like a short phase of like, have fun with the multiverse, exhaust the fun you can have with it because it can be fun. And then crunch down to a single sensible Marvel universe that now has all the pieces in it. Because the the sidebar to this is like the meta, the, you know, I think this is also the point where the meta fiction became far more important um, for, for certain audience members, but also for the structure of the stories where like, we're really watching the dramatic negotiations over the Spider-Man, X-Men and Fantastic Four IPs between mm. Marvel and like Fox or Sony, for example. Right. Yeah. Like, um, or between Disney and formerly Fox and then Sony, like they have chosen to dramatize something that is a business consideration. And also for the first time, they're starting to put weight on 
actors in a way they haven't quite previously, which is not to say that obviously the Marvel movies made huge stars of like Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Hemsworth or, or Chris Evans. Um, but one of the things I thought was really, we haven't said that I think was really interesting about Marvel before this, that itself was um, uh, reminded me of the studio system in some ways was it felt like for a while they sort of knocked, made actors less important, right? Um, one of the defining features of superhero movies from the 90s into the noughties in some ways was, well, for the 90s specifically, I think maybe you can call out the both Bale as Batman and Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man as um, exceptions to this. Um, but, you know, superhero movies were also expected to be star vehicles in some way, like Val Kilmer as Batman, George Clooney as Batman, et cetera, right? Like mm. um, the, your leading actor had a huge, um, a huge impact on being able to sell the films. You know, they struggled with Superman for a while. Uh, you know, at one point they're going to, you know, because they struggled to find a leading man to play him. Obviously, famously, at one point, Tom Cruise was considered for Iron Man as a different way of drawing eyes to that movie. Um, and I thought there was one thing that's interesting about Marvel is it was like, well, maybe the actor's not the point, the character's the point. And that's really quite true, I think, for early Marvel. Uh, there are some exceptions to this, like Scarlett Johansson, who's already a huge star. But really, if you look at the core cast of the Avengers, none of them are like, bankable action stars at the point where those really start right not in the scale that you would expect from uh, a hollywood superstar mm. um you know obviously robert downey jr had a long career but he wasn't thought of as like you know the leading man to, to end all leading men right by f- far from it and and, and same with the rest like um and then you get into this phase and suddenly the actors really start to matter again People want to see Tobey Maguire come back. They want to see Andrew Garfield again. They want meta jokes about the short-lived Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. They they want to see Patrick Stewart as Professor X again. And that reintroduces celebrity as like a meta layer that, again, these are being kind of judged against. Um, I doubt Loki, the show, exists without the fandom that surrounds Tom Hilston as Loki, the character. I just don't think that happens. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but it feels like a big shift to me in terms of what's important. And I will say this. I think Spider-Man No Way Home is the best, the highlight of this phase so far. And I say yeah, that because yeah. the experience of watching, part of, for several reasons. One is, I think it's a really fun film. It's overloaded and it's really messy, but it's the closest this phase has gotten to feeling special. Um, and maybe that's a bit mean because there are things I've liked in the, the TV shows actually, but... Um, in that having that cinema experience of like that was the only thing I've seen in the cinema in this phase where people have been like shrieking and clapping because they were having so much fun. It's the only time it's happened. <laughs> um, you know, it was actually really interesting how how excitable the opening night audience for Spider Man No Way Home was versus how muted the opening night audience for Doctor Strange was. Um, mm. Like there was a murmur of like oh at some of its big cameos, but really like not a ton. Whereas like the Daredevil cameo in No Way Home was like a big gasp. Like it was really quite fun to be in the room for that. Um, and obviously like one person absolutely lost their fucking minds when they saw Harry Styles at the end of Eternals, which was obviously a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's, if that's too arch a point, but it does feel like the sort of the, the bigger negotiations around what this fiction's going to be and what they can pull from the past and how the Marvel universe can be said to extend all the way back to the Raimi movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That really like 
I find that kind of like short-term fun in the case of the Spider-Man film, long-term desperately boring and want them to kind of get past it back to a universe with characters in it, basically where things matter. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think this is the, the, the hazard of that is illustrated by the Dr. Strange movie, which uh, has a lot of fun brutally dispatching beloved characters, but at the same time, I mean, that just trivializes it <laughs> yeah. uh, in a way which you can't ever get back. I think once you've kind of uh, uncorked that genie, yeah. Um, it's interesting to so I, just to um, jump over to DC. I think this mm. brings us back to what uh, I was going towards with um, uh, James Gunn's efforts. So at the moment in DC, um, there are James Gunn and uh, a producer whose name I've forgotten have essentially been given the reins to several of its branching cinematic universes. So you still have like the leftover dregs of the stupidly super serious Snyderverse, uh, which have now been sort of gobbled up by the self-consciously unserious Gunverse uh, with Suicide Squad and Peacemaker. And then you have the Joker and its forthcoming sequel. And then completely separate from that as well, you have Bat- uh, Matt Reeves' uh, burgeoning Batman franchise. Um but the kind of mainstay of that, I think, is James Gunn's efforts to kind of um, almost purge the Snyderverse, <laughs> in mm. a way, of its seriousness with the Suicide Squad and Peacemaker. And I think both of those are quite enjoyable in their own right. But I do think there's um, there's you're now presented with a problem uh, of uh, of humor within these universes actually undermining or. Ad- in addition to all the other ways in which these universes uh, are removing one's investment, the the self-mockery of superheroes, I think it has uh, a short shelf life because mm. it's, it's, it's fine to kind of, um, you know, throw a bunch of ridiculous characters um, and have them turned into mincemeat in, in Suicide Squad. But I think if you, if you go down the path of, um, making great fun of the idea of superheroes, then you've somewhat, you've somewhat killed the golden goose uh, of the entire premise. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you think there's a hazard? And do you think that hazard, um, to bring it back to Marvel, do you think there's a hazard in the way that, for example, the Thor movies, Love and Thunder, which I thought was also a very um, consciously trivial film, uh, can damage the kind of your your investment in the whole project yeah to all of the above so i actually so to kind of like it's this, it feels like this balance of lightness and sincerity and theme and things that they really struggle with and i'm trying to think of the best way to kind of try and tie a bow on all of this but one way to think about it i guess maybe to take away humorous analogies like this superhero stories or superhero kind of this is pop culture it's also basically another analogy and i keep using my music analogies but it's kind of pop music right and and pop music can doesn't really ever need to you know reinvent or change its core themes to continue to have enduring meaning to people right it's a lot of songs about falling in love in the world and people aren't really like kind of getting bored of that or even getting bored of certain musical principles that kind of keep resurfacing these things and people will invest heavily in the in the art of pop music, and it is an art. I think one of Marvel's Marvel's big successes was managing that balance of like, kind of, light, accessible, catchy presentation, 
with a degree of sincerity that made things feel weighty and meaningful. I think that's its big success. Crucially, also, its its choices aesthetically in setting up that kind of you know to use pop music as an analogy are pretty accessible. It's pretty they, they play the hits right. Like it's you know they may all kind of trend in different directions, but they don't go too weird or too tonally kind of outre for its audience. The problem with like Snyder, I guess, um, and the Snyderverse was always that the tone, the 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 feeling of the thing, the presentation of the thing was too weird, too dark, which I suspect is why people why people are devoted to it. Um, in some ways, it feels more like comics. In some ways, where it's just very odd, very niche. It feels like you know, if I was to kind of like continue the music analogy uh, and torture it the rest of the way to death, it would be that. You know, if Marvel's making pop records, DC inexplicably made a very niche doom wank prog metal album and expected it to do well on the charts. Except I agree with that, but I think they're playing everything on the kazoo. Uh, yes, there which is, is that. Which is the tonal mistake I think they've made. Sure, it also wasn't any good, but like, <laughs> like there's like, there was both concept and execution. And I think the concept was mis was um, poorly aimed at the audience, which is why it was even more of a disaster when they got Joss Whedon to come in with his slide whistle to finish it. Like, <laughs> um, um, but also the and then the execution is, is pretty poor. And I think and the reason the reason I'm torturing this music analogy so much is because of how like absolutely central to the success of all of the gun stuff music is, right? Like. Um, you know, I, I really liked Peacemaker. I think it's a really good bit of TV. Um, I think it's my favorite of the superhero TV things recently, um, including any of the Marvel stuff and also including things like The Boys, although I think The Boys is, is, is things to recommend it as well. And there's a fun that James Gunn is having in opposition that is almost demonstrated through the incongruous music choices he makes by turning Peacemaker into a character that's obsessed with 80s glam metal or turning Star-Lord into a character that's obsessed with the 70s mixtape. There's this sort of like willingness to kind of poke at or toy with the fabric of an established blockbuster and kind of undermine it. And, and I think that's really fun. Um, but when I say it's sort of a position that is fun while it's in opposition, what I really mean is like it works well as the kind of like rebellious teen in the bedroom of the big Marvel house. It doesn't, mm. it becomes sort of slightly odd when it's the, the, the main course this is I've, this analogy is getting the fuck away from me holy shit <laughs> holy shit how how many multiverses can i dig deep into this analogy now? um and so while well, you're having your, your main course of pop music served to you in a big house which is also a film um you take that first bite and you throw up immediately just as i just have all over the microphone <laughs> actually that was that was a failure of pataphism um the what I'm trying to say, and I really am trying to say something, I've just forgotten what words are, is that in terms of balancing tone, you're absolutely right that reducing the stakes in that way is literally deconstructive. I think that's what I'm getting around to, right? The kind of the rebelliousness thing. That's really what I'm getting yeah. around to. Like what it really reminds me of is the desire, the really strongly felt desire in so many comics over the years to just tear up superheroes and do various things with them, usually pretty grim and grotesque if, it, if things start to trend in like a Mark Miller direction or something like that. Mm. Um, sometimes very heartfelt and sincere and sort of 
attempting to find a deeper meaning in these stories and that would be like the grant morrison direction or something like that but either way there's this desire to deconstruct this thing and try and put it together in a way that turns it into something other than colorful operatic stories for a younger audience to be honest yeah and and it's the great misinterpretation of watchmen <laughs> that watchmen was comics growing up or comic superhero no, crucially superheroes growing up really what Watchmen establishes is that like you can deconstruct these characters and you can take them to a certain point. But at the end of the day, that's there's only one place they can go when you start to do that. And it doesn't last. And it isn't, you know, the the dream collapses quite crucially. Because at the end of the day they are stories for kids. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to me that all of the most successful for me things in this in this phase have really known their audience and I think played to them successfully. And I appreciate this has been a long and confusing rant, but I'll, I'll land it here by returning to the other film you're talking about, Thor Love and Thunder, which I thought was pretty crap. And yeah. I was really like, that was the biggest disappointment for me because I really like Ragnarok. And I was kind of waiting for the spark to be rein, reinserted into this phase of the films. And I think it's easily the worst thing. And I, I think it's worse than Eternals. I think no. No, I don't mean that. Don't I mean that? <laughs> there has never been as an exquisite and protracted act of pants shitting, as I think, in Eternals. So there was an interesting thing I saw the other day by uh, a guy on Twitter, would you know, who I think might work for Larry. And anyway, he said, uh, he, he pointed out there's the difference between contempt and dislike. Uh, he says, being contemptuous, this is a guy called Cromwelp, incidentally, if you wish to follow him. Um, being contemptuous of something is unhelpful, while disliking something is often a positive, critical, and meaningful position. Um, I think that's really useful in thinking about why Eternals uh, totally uh, shits uh, the bed. And something like Andor is really successful, because both of those projects uh, were essentially given to people outside of the fandom of those franchises. Um, I forget what the name of the, the, the showrunner um for um is it gilmore gilray uh, for andor is gilray thank you um but he 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 was famously sort of um torn apart by the uh the fans for saying that he was never really a fan fan of star wars and i think that's what 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 that's allowed him to do is to make something good <laughs> which wasn't in hock to any previous expectations but was in its own right something that by his own standards was good whereas i think so i think he disliked star wars for example but made something good used that critical knowledge to craft something decent from that fiction whereas i think uh, the creative team behind eternals had total contempt for Marvel and thought that it could get away with shoveling any old shit at the audience, um, uh, which wasn't true, as it turns out. See, I'm not sure I 100% agree. I agree with the broad framing. I don't think Eternals... I think Eternals' problem is it's sort of over-earnest in, in a lot of ways, but also really inexpert in terms of how to balance the tone of a superhero story, and almost like it doesn't learn enough lessons from the rest of Marvel in some ways. But I would say, in its to its in its favor, I think it genuinely looks nice. Like I think it's sort of primarily a very visual film, and um, I, you know, kind of appreciated some of its sort of spectacle. And I own comics like this where like I could completely skip the writing and just look at the art. And that's kind of what the Eternals is for me. Um, good slideshow, I think. Um, 
which is not sufficient as movie making. I, I, I will agree with you and probably Martin Scorsese on that, but like, um, nonetheless, I think the reason I sort of wandered into like, and I am wrong to say that it is a better film than Thor, Love and Thunder. I don't think that's <laughs> true, really. But I think it's probably a worse film than the Snyder Cut, just, just to throw that out there. Um, yeah, I think the Snyder Cut is like, I th- I quite enjoyed the Snyder Cut. I ordered a pizza <laughs> and I watched all of the Snyder Cut in one sitting um, with a bottle of wine. And I actually had a great time because it is so fucking weird. Such a, <laughs> yeah, and like, that's kind of what I want. Like, because it is, it's deeply idiosyncratic and it's very unapologetic for what it is. And what it is is not good, but I'm glad I find myself happy, you know, there's, there's a kind of, I mean, apparently like I've been accused of being a people pleaser. And I think maybe part of that is this um, so much so that I once like refused dental anesthetics. I don't want to inconvenience the dentist. That's the point of view I'm coming at. Um, <laughs> um, um, and so I'm coming at it from that point of view. I can enjoy a film. If the person next to me is enjoying it, I can enjoy a film. If I think the director is pleased with it, I'm like, well, good for yeah. you, Zach. Like, you know what I mean? Like just, you know, okay. Okay. Like, good for you. I'm glad that you did this. I think I have the yeah, opposite... He really made the thing that he wanted to make. Was yeah. that a good choice? Maybe no. not in the broad scheme of things, um... but you know, <laughs> but yeah. Whereas, um, Whereas with Thor, Thor, Love and Thunder, I was really disappointed by it because it felt too comfortable. And this is this is the extremely, this is really where I was trying to get to with that sort of um, tortured set of analogies earlier, was um, Thor, you know, talking about, uh, yeah, contempt versus dislike. I think Thor Ragnarok is an interesting example of someone, I don't know if if if, if Taika Waititi was necessarily contemptuous of Marvel, but certainly came at it very willing to tear it up, but also kind of like teasingly, lovingly pay tribute to parts of it that maybe were underserved in the movies, right? Like um, his um, his Thor movie was the most kind of colourful and curvy-ish of, of all of them, and that was really nice to see. I thought with love and thunder it has some sort of weighty themes but it's so sort of undeveloped in the parts that it should be developing more deeply like it gives so little opportunities for christian bale who's actually i think pretty great in it to just own the film it's too overloaded by a desire to have like characters in it that simply don't belong there but are there because they you get the impression that they're enjoyed you know maybe in a kind of broader sense but like by the I mean, it was literally, I was about to say that, like, I think Taika Waititi might like Korg too much, and I'd forgotten that he fucking plays Korg. Oh, like, does he? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, there you, you know, go, yeah. Right, like, my, my criticism in the movie is, like, Korg just shouldn't have been fucking in it, frankly. Yeah. Like, at all. It, the, the, you know, that, that film would work so much better if it was tightly concentrated on, like, Thor, um, Jane Foster's Thor, and uh, The God Butcher, and that was the movie. And, and yet, it's so overloaded and also tonally like these moments where like, I don't know if it's comfort or complacency or a lack of desire to be challenging, but to me, there's nothing less rebellious than like a screaming goat's joke in the year 2022. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's was... just, it might as well just be a fart noise. Yeah. There's quite a lot of fart noises 
uh, in Thor Love and Thunder. And yet they are paired with like an opening scene in which a child dies. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I just, you know, I'm just can't be on board for this. So you've got to choose one or the other. I think, I think one of the things that make makes Ragnarok more successful than that is Ragnarok takes place. All of its absurdity is uh, dislocated from the larger Marvel universe. Mm. I mean, I, Broadly and and plumped onto you know Jeff Goldblum's trash planet, um, where <laughs> yeah. it can be as silly as it likes, you know. But in this, it's uh, every, all of its attempts at humor are undermining the foundations of something that we're otherwise invested in. From like, what are the pantheon of gods otherwise like? Because clearly they're going to be significant <laughs> at some point in future films, and you don't want them to be uh, a complete farce i think mm-hmm. and this is the thing where the, the like the the tonal expansion of uh phase four begins to jeopardize i think the larger kind of one's investment in the overall thing um even if individually like those experiments are successful in their own right and i think for example she hulk i i really mm-hmm. enjoyed I think it's a pretty funny show, but then it does end uh, on this fourth wall breaking moment, which undoes uh, quite a lot of the what had happened in the final episode, um, and sort of dusts its hands off and ties everything up in a kind of pithy bow. But which is fine. I actually don't mind the fact, within the context of the show, that it was willing to do this incredible fourth wall breaking stuff. Um, but it does mean I don't actually know what happened at the end of that film, like really. Yeah. I don't know what significance that's going to have for any other thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so, again, like even though that, that I think in isolation was a fine thing to do, they've lost sight of the, the, the kind of original motive of bringing these things into a single mission, a single purpose. I don't think with that with the multiverse, with the glib use of humor, with the other kinds of destructivist tendencies that we've seen across this phase four, that it's doing itself any favors in trying to bring people into a single narrative. And I just don't feel the same growing excitement and sense of momentum as I did in phase three, to the extent where I don't know whether I'm going to see any more. Like, you know, I periodically... Uh, get a Disney Plus subscription, mainline all of the uh, things I can while my partner is away and won't judge me. And then uh, I, I leave it to go fallow again. And yet I don't know that that cycle is going to continue. Like I yeah. might just not pick it up again because I, I think a lot of these things are pulling in so many different directions. I'm not especially interested in any of them on the face of it. And quite a lot of the individual um, things within Phase 4, I think, have been pretty shabby uh you know wandavision had some interesting ideas uh i think the pandemic probably didn't help with its uh, the way it tied up again the falcon and the winter soldier pretty messy again some interesting ideas loki i didn't like at all was an absolute mess of you know just like i know jangling nonsensical myth arc aspirations uh with uh, a kind of Slash, slash fiction veneer <laughs> which um just didn't uh, it didn't amount to anything um and i could go on like oh there's hawkeye i thought was was pretty great and probably one of the only kind of self-contained and totally coherent uh mm-hmm. agree things moon knight was a shambling mess um miss marvel i liked a lot actually as well mm-hmm. um 
but you know there's not many things to kind of ground you to kind of put a pin and say okay this is where things are going these are the stakes these are the characters i care about because it's doing everything it can in all of the other directions to kind of uh de-invest you do you think yeah. you will you will persist or is it uh, i think you've you've helped me kind of um break out what, what i'm I think I've been trying to say as I forget how to speak this entire time. The only thing I would add is I really liked Shang-Chi as well. Oh, I, yeah. think, I think that's that was right. genuinely a really fun film. And But here's, I think, the reason both that it's uh, for, for the tonal things and the various points that I've tried to make about the, the lack of a coherent metaplot and also that feeling of this is kind of what it was like reading comics. And it's because this truthfully does not feel like a universe anymore. It feels like a um, a loose container for stories and creative works that may be good and may be shit. And that's a lot more like the comics, a lot more like the comics. And the experience of being like a comics fan for me was of following sometimes characters more often than not writers and artists from project to project. Um, because you'd want to know, like, who made this one? I'll follow the writer that I like, or I'll follow a character that I like, because I've heard good things about, you know, I maybe haven't read the writer before, but a character I like is getting a treatment from a writer that's well-regarded, or something like that, or something interesting about the art style. Like, you would not try and read it all, because there's a lot of there's a lot of mediocre stuff in there, but you'd kind of be guided by a meta sense of, like, where the good stuff's likely to be. But that doesn't contribute to a sense of Marvel in that concept as a universe. But actually, at the time I was reading comics, they'd given up on that. It was a multiverse, and occasionally you'd dip into a side universe or something else. Meta stakes, characters living or dying, didn't really matter hugely. And a lot of the event stuff you could skip. Um, the good stuff was found in individual runs, like the Matt Fraction Hawkeye run that informed the TV show, for example. Um, and that's what the that's what the cinematic universe is starting to feel like not like because i feel like you know cogently and otherwise i've been trying to articulate why it stopped feeling like a universe to me mm. and it is because yeah there isn't a single plot to kind of drive me forward the multiverse nature itself takes away the stakes in that in a huge way and also it's so inconsistent that it's not feeling like that crucially another kind of thing starting from one division you start to see them, you know, literally through the text of these shows and, and movies, play with um, the instability of reality itself, right? Like one division of show where she literally summons herself a TV show to kind of live in or whatever. But then, you know, I would compare that to something similar, like the end of, uh, you know, minor thing from the end of Werewolf by Night, where it goes from being black and white to in color, not in the universe, but as a way to communicate you to the reader, to you, the viewer, hey, this is going from being stylized like a genre piece, a Marvel Hammer Horror pastiche, to being part of the Marvel Universe now. And that alone tells you that you're occupying a kind of, it's the same, it's not quite the fourth wall break that She-Hulk does. But it is still a fourth wall break in some ways. It is kind mm. of toy with your perception of what the universe even means. And all of that kind of culminating in that She-Hulk moment is basically confirming, like, because, you know, that's one of those things that's rewarding if you're aware of the history of the comic book character, where she will punch her way out of the comic and have an argument with the writer. That's very much a She-Hulk thing. It's, you know, it's both very, you know, it's, it's almost a perfect encapsulation of this sort of thing, where it's both a kind of, 
um, bold new surprise for them to fold in um, to something, uh, you know, a, a degree of cheekiness they've never done before with having her explicitly ask for the X-Men or whatever. Um, and yet it's also deeply familiar <laughs> and kind of deeply faithful to the source material. Um, but I think it it makes it canonically the case that what you're experiencing is not a cogent place with characters who have consistent experience between appearances, but a, a toy box full of different kinds of entertainment for you to dip in and out of. And that's the point where this became a theme park, really, to me. Mm. Um, and interpreted like that, you can find things to like. But to your point, I, I you know, I find myself drawn now to... Um, if I made better decisions about my time, I probably wouldn't see all of it. <laughs> I probably will end up seeing most of it. But like, I find myself drawn to characters or creative teams or actors that I'm interested in rather than the marvelness of it, right? Mm. And crucially, that was in some ways the beginning of the end for me buying comics. Life factors happened as well. But part of it was like, I felt like in buying comics for a better part of a decade, I did a couple of laps of this process by which I'd get into a big story. It would collapse into a million smaller stories. Eventually something would cohere that would take my interest. I'd follow that for a bit and it collapsed again and so on and so on, getting kind of thinner and thinner until I just kind of checked out of that ecosystem completely. And I can sort of see that happening now with Marvel. And I, I think it would take a really concerted effort to refocus it to get mm. back to where they were in phase three. Well, in a weird way, I mean, it would be easier for me to accept uh, if everything was doing its own thing completely. And I was able to, say, follow a creative team as they did a run on something. But because there is still this instinct within uh, the MCU to try and tie things together and to try and make each thing somewhat critical to, you know, information-wise yeah. in, in, in terms of... A, how you understand the stakes in other things. Um, it's in a halfway house, really. It doesn't, um, it doesn't know whether to break apart or, or stay together. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, I, I also enjoyed, you know, She-Hulk. It's sort of, like, I thought um, the, the penultimate episode of She-Hulk felt probably the most like reading the sing a single issue of a Marvel comic, a decent Marvel comic, of anything they've ever made. Um, and looking at the list, I have found things to like in a lot of it. Like... I, I thought Falcon the Winter Soldier was a bit of a mess, but I uh, really enjoyed it in the end mm. um, because I really like Anthony Mackie, really like Sebastian Stan in those roles. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I thought it kind of, you know, it kept me engaged and I cared about the characters by the end, uh, which is not a lot to ask. Similarly, like... Um, oh, well, Aaron, it did yeah. the amazing job of uh, making it clear that uh, Anthony Mackie would be the new Captain America. And yeah. And making that a really compelling uh, prospect, which is not something that I necessarily would have said because these characters sort of get short shrift up until this point. Um, yeah, and I, I think it did a, you know a good job with the tricky thing, which is he's given the shield at the end of Endgame, and by rights he can just have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? He doesn't need a whole show where he earns it. And I thought there was some tricky territory there, but I thought they did a good job of refocusing that around him coming to terms with what that would mean rather than proving himself. And I thought there was a big risk yeah. that they evaded and that was really well handled. 
I think like Shang Chi was is the most effective kind of introduction of a new character that they've done for ages. Like in terms of wanting to see more of that character. Want actually, I would genuinely be excited if he showed up in something. So he probably won't for ages. <laughs> um, and as you say, like Hawkeye, I thought like I I love that Hawkeye comic, and Kate Bishop is is has always been like a favorite character of mine from the comics as well. Basically, I kind of like the. I like the street level New York characters who make jokes because they're very sad. That's all of the characters I like in Marvel. <laughs> Spider-Man, Daredevil, Kate Bishop. Um, you know, uh, that's that's basically the thing I enjoy. So I uh, really enjoyed it for that. And and also crucially, like, you know, a good, in, you know, bringing um, uh, new Black Widow into that. Yelena um, oh, yeah. like, was yeah. like really fun really sort of, you know, made that character in a way that I think she somewhat emerged through the Black Widow movie and then really came into her own Hawkeye. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, lots to sort of enjoy about that. And then it starts to get a little weird where, like, I like Moon Knight the character. I didn't hate Moon Knight the show, but yeah, what, a I don't weird, know, something... what a weird piece of television. I did, it just had lots of connective tissue that was missing, like, it, it, to the extent that, like, characters seem to teleport within the same yeah. scene because it hasn't been edited together with enough footage i guess or mm. to, to make those jumps but yeah it's, it's, it looked it, it felt painful it felt like it was a, a, a painful thing to put together i really like miss marvel i'll say that i think yeah i think that i think miss marvel's probably the standout like success of the tv shows for me in terms of consistency mm. um i think I'm, I'm I'm interested that you liked She-Hulk as much as you did because I I found that like I really enjoyed it, but there was like one good joke per episode for most of it. Although I really liked Tatiana Maslany in it, so I really liked her. I found her very charming, but in terms of actually making me laugh, it was very thin. Yeah, I think it was mostly amicable rather than funny. Mm, yeah, um, but that 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 was okay. I didn't find anything. There weren't too many jokes that were unfunny i felt like it it, it coasted mm. it was good coasting which is not always the case with comedy uh it's better to be moderately funny than it is to try and fail <laughs> at being funny i do want to give a shout out to um i think it was a very i really i thought a very successful reintroduction of daredevil as well yeah. um and then like i thought i saw a very funny um bad take on twitter and i can't remember who a bad take on twitter i know uh, which was like, I can't believe they've done Matt Murdock dirty like this, you know, now that he's shagging everyone and making jokes, this is completely undermining um, the kind of intense Catholicism of the of his character in the Netflix shows. And like, uh, as if as if being um, horny and, and sort of self-deprecating wasn't the most Catholic thing he could be. <laughs> <laughs> um like, um, but yeah, and also very true to that character in the comics as well, who's sort of interchangeably like the saddest man alive and either the randiest man alive or like a kind of like kind of comic relief, sort of sardonic presence. So the little devil on the shoulder of Marvel comics. I thought it was very successful at that. I really, really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to kind of land this kind of, this sort of, because I don't intend this to sound like a kind of excoriation of phase four of Marvel. I just think it's sort of changed so dramatically into something new. So in well, some ways it feels like a bit of a wake for what it was in a way. Yeah. I mean, to kind of defend its current direction, let's say, I mean, phase one and phase two and phase three, if you want to 
incorporate them all together, we're all kind of working towards endgame and that narrative. Mm-hmm. So maybe we just have to wait for uh, phase six for this current <laughs> current phase to land any of its uh, current narrative directions. Or maybe if you just count the the films, if if uh, I mean. That would put us only halfway through phase four if we were to count the films by themselves. That's true. And those films would be two Spider-Man films, Black Widow, mm. Shang-Chi, Eternals, Doctor Strange, and Thor, Love and Thunder. Like, what is this about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's the thing for me is like, I I agree with you. And like, I was thinking about this watching, I watched the most recent thing I saw was Werewolf by Night. And I was watching it thinking like, just trying to think ahead, like in secret wars is there going to be a scene where they're like only a big hairy man can save us now and like there's werewolf by night he's here now he's here in this scene and i guess we're all excited to see him because we've not seen him since that one-off show they did for halloween that year like and part of me is like that's totally going to happen and also am i going to fall for it again (laughs) (laughs) and the answer is probably yes (laughs) like frankly but like i'm i'm like and I really don't know sure I had anything to add on that really, other than like there is going to be that absurd moment where like the X-Men Blackbird shows up and here's Deadpool and and it's just gonna kind of keep piling on. And maybe it will work, maybe it'll pull it off. I think my 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 concern slash sobering thought is I do feel like they've lost a lot of momentum. And mm. it is very muddy and it's very confusing. And I'm not sure that the I think that kind of that big cathartic outcome sort of required a really singular focus on that expected ending um, for a long time to kind of build up to that big release. Whereas right now it feels like they're sort of uh, lighting smaller fires uh, with smaller payoffs. Another terribly confused analogy. I'm really struggling here, Marsh. I don't. I think. I think across the multiverse, several different versions of me are trying to have a single thought. Somewhere, your neck is being brutally snapped by one of the Olsons. <laughs> I wish. Um, that's, that... <laughs> uh... <laughs> On that uh, horny note, shall we? Uh... <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to ask to try and wrap this up and move on from that thought. Are you looking forward to the next part of this? Because there is, you know, a lot more coming. There's, there's Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. There's the Ant Man movie, Quantumania, that just got a trailer, um, and then more things besides, presumably. You know, I'm I, mm, Wakanda <laughs> Forever. I'm interested in because it is going to be uh, an interesting production task given that they they've mm-hmm. sadly lost uh their main and excellent actor um i don't know what they're going to do narratively to accommodate that it seems like they are hanging a lampshade on it and saying that uh, the character has also died within the fiction where they go with that it's totally unknown so i am interested to see that ant-man i feel has always been uh sort of uh, a total frivolity which provides its own completely set separate set of physics <laughs> which and complete nonsense physics as well so i'm not on that basis particularly excited by the idea of returning to the quantum realm um uh which also appears to involve kang who's a character who i don't have any initial kind of particular 
fond feelings for and also threatens to embark into the multiverse so no i'm not particularly excited for Ant man and secret invasion you know i keep on forgetting who the scroll are even though i've seen all of the films in which they've been <laughs> introduced <laughs> um, that's the whole trick They're yeah very memorable so uh, and also i don't quite quite get why that's happening because the they, they, as far as as far as I recall from the films I've watched, they have al- already been redeemed as a as a force. So I don't quite quite get why they would be uh, a scary antagonist. I'm sure that will be established within that film, but what they've established so far is the antithesis of that. So it seems a very confusing prospect for me. Um, beyond that, don't know. Don't really know what the Secret Wars stuff is about. So, uh, are you? <laughs> I. Um, I am looking forward to Wakanda Forever. <laughs> I liked the trailer. It was the first trailer. You know, I, I mean, it's they're bringing, um, you know, uh, Black Panther was great. So I have faith in the production team, and I'm excited about what kind of story they choose to tell with that. I think the characters they're introducing feel like a really interesting set in bringing in Riri Williams as kind of new Iron Man, basically. Um, uh, cool character could be good. Uh, there are a lot of new Iron Men in the wings currently. Yeah, because every also doing, single uh, character seems to have a nerd friend who is really good at constructing shit. Yeah, um, it, I, I mean, even even Spider Man is basically Iron Man as well. So it's <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they're also people. building towards Armor Wars, right? So they're actually, which is now going to be a film. So oh, like, okay, yeah. Wow. Um, so that's I think maybe text rather than subtext at this point, but like. I guess when your most pop biggest in universe celebrity is um a you know like inventor who make robot suit and then you know sacrifice himself that's what the kids grow up wanting to do um but um and then bringing in Namor as well who's one of those characters that is a big part of the universe and it'll be interesting to see how they handle that mm-hmm. um and that sort of all trends in a secret wars direction which will be you know, again, like um, very, that's the sort of very heady side of Marvel about kind of the kind of universe scale threats that it'll be interesting to see how they handle it because it's, it's their opportunity, I think, to make something meaningful of the multiverse or to establish that nothing matters. Um, and then Secret Invasions, uh, I, I echo your thoughts on Ant-Man. Um, I want to see Jonathan Majors as Kang more, but I he literally could be talking to anyone <laughs> and I would, I would be there for that. <laughs> Um, but then with, um, I think secret invasion is an interesting one because it feels like they're using this to kind of keep that thread of like spy fiction going, right. The kind Hmm. of winter soldier onwards, um, like, uh, you know, Marvel thriller genre moving. And I'm for that because I think that's produced some really good stuff. Um, and actually it kind of makes sense to map the scrolls onto that, given their whole thing is shape-shifting and that sort of like, you know, who can you trust fiction? However, what it's based on, Secret Invasion in the comics, was a big crossover event that um, had some overlap in some ways with um, Civil War, which was big spectacle. It was like any superhero could be a scroll. They have the same powers. You know, it, it was this opportunity to have these kind of like big, you know, sort of like set twos and set pieces with lots of different characters involved. Crucially, it was also you know, most of these big events when they happen from Civil War through to the various Infinity Crises to Secret Wars are reset opportunities. There are opportunities for that thing I was talking about at the start for these universes to clean house a little bit. Hmm. And um, 
that's very much what Secret Invasion was, because Secret Invasion allowed them in the comic to say, people haven't really liked how we've written this character for the last couple of years. Oh, turns out they were a scroll the whole time. And, uh, oh, we've killed the scroll them, and they're keeping the character you used to like in a box. And he's back, and he's got his old personality back from before that writer you didn't like took him over. Um, and which is another mechanism by which comics can make sure nothing means anything, right? Yeah. So part of me is a little wary for like, will that happen in this show? And if so, who is it going to be? You know what I mean? Like, who's mm. who is going to turn out to have been? And I hope what my hope for it is that by finding it, finding those themes at home in the spy fiction thing, they can actually kind of just tell a you know a Nick Fury story or something like that without it kind of having to be this big meta act of universe rebuilding. But we'll see. Um, but yeah, uh, I think Black Panther is the only one of them that I will genuinely do that thing of going to the Odin on day one to see how people react to it. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They certainly exist. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, on that note, we must have a quick change in a telephone booth, return to our normal clothes and shuffle back into our ordinary lives. Joke's on you. I'm going to wander in uh, to your post credit sequence, Marsh. That's um, <laughs> uh, you don't know when it's going to happen. You're just going to have to scroll sit. all along. You're just going to sit and watch. You know, all those credits roll by because it took a lot of people for the special effects in this one. Uh, if you'd like to send us a question, you can do so at questions at crowbar.com. You can tweet us at crowbar. Uh, you can watch all of these recordings as videos on YouTube where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers and Patreon. They don't pay for these lock-in episodes, only the semi-regular gaming podcast. You can back us, too, at patreon.com slash Crate Crowbar, or you can just join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. That's it. My true name is Marsh Davis. Now you can be summoned. (laughs) (laughs) I've been Chris Teston. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody.